0: Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn and you are listening to Rethinking EDU. This is our next episode in our series on networks and we are super pumped to be joined by Ron Berger from EL Education. We'll introduce Ron in a, in just a second here, but first things first, co-hosts, Janine, Julie, and Matt. How are y'all doing today?
1: Hey, great, good, I'm actually, um waiting on a birthday surprise for my son. Apparently, my, his aunt sent him something and that nobody knows what it is, but it was on the news recently, so I, I don't know. <laughs> so oh if I leave all gosh. of a sudden or you hear a ruckus because something got delivered, I don't know.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Matt, what are you up to? You no, know, just trying to navigate
2: through this, uh, I guess it's an ornery spring, you know, it's cold one day, hot the next day, um, but, I, but I am enjoying this, this uh, little glimpse of, of sunlight.
0: Julie, how are you feeling today?
3: I'm feeling a little zoomed out today. Um, (laughs) A lot of hours on Zoom, so I'm happy for this break.
0: That's awesome. I, too, have felt a little zoomed out recently, but I'm feeling pretty good. I'm doing a lot of reading recently. Just picked up a new book by a friend of mine called Maverick Teachers, How Innovative Educators are Are Saving Public Schools. Super interested in just getting through the introduction Um, But I'll save that for a little bit later. Let's introduce Ron Berger. Ron, where are you joining us from and how are you doing today?
4: Well, nice to join you all. So I'm Ron Berger and I am joining you from Western Massachusetts. I uh, have lived in in a small town up in the hills for a long time and I was the only public school upper elementary teacher in my small town for 28 years. Pretty much everyone in my town under the age of 55 is my former student. So it's a <laughs> whole <What's> the... <laughs> world here.
0: Wow. Okay. We could talk about that for like 45 minutes, I think. That's really amazing. Um, and so I'm I'm so happy to have you here. So right now your work is with EL Education, and you've been doing work for EL for a while. But as you mentioned, you've been teaching in public schools for nearly 30 years. Um, have you pretty much been located in the western Massachusetts area most of that time, or um, where has your work kind of centered at?
4: Yeah, Mike, I, I have been here for a, an awfully long time. I um, I built my own home on top of a hill in this rural town, which during the, the crisis is actually a good place to be, because I'm on a dirt road, and there's not a lot of people nearby. I have a farm <laughs> with with sheep and and horses, chickens and ducks, but not a lot of people, which is really nice. Um, so I can go out uh without worrying about bumping into people at all. And you know one of the things about having taught everybody in the town. Is that it reminds me every single day of what's really important in education, which is not just test scores in math and literacy, although, you know, basic skills in math and literacy are important, but it's to create the kind of human beings that you want to live with for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Like our entire volunteer fire department are my former students. If I'm in trouble, they're the ones who are going to save me. I think all the time about the point of schools is to create good human beings who are good citizens, who are have a great work ethic and, and high standards for their work. And that's because my nurse is my former student. My doctor is my former student. My plumber is my former student. My plowman is my former student. Like So <laughs> I really care that they have high standards for their work and that they're good human beings.
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: I love it. That's great.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that fits in with a lot of what this podcast is about. Rethinking, reshaping education around some of those core ideals, and a lot of what you know kind of brought Julie and Janine and Matt and I together, um, talking about these things about what education is really even for, and it, I think some of our listeners out there have probably heard of Yale Education, maybe they've heard of it by a different name, um, but can you just give us kind of like the broad, uh, broad brushstrokes of the of the organization?
4: Sure, so uh, EL has been around about 27 years, and I've actually been working with EL since the beginning. There was an overlap of about 10 years where, uh, Mike, I was teaching full-time in my school here in the small town and also helping EL get off the ground. Um, and then uh, about 15 years ago, I made the switch over, left the classroom um, and teaching and started working to help build EL and support schools and districts around the country we started actually from a a strange marriage of two organizations. One was Harvard Graduate School of Education, and the other was Outward Bound USA. And the the confluence of those two were because back in the early 90s, President uh, George H. Bush put out this RFP to the country of Think of a break the mold vision of schooling. Like, is there a different model of school that could change America? And anyone in America could apply with a new model of school. And if you were chosen, you got a million dollars to develop your program. And then if your program was good, they'd give you three million dollars to to help see if you could institute it, especially in low income communities, public school communities. Uh, we submitted one of those applications on behalf of Harvard and Outward Bound with the vision of what if you took the active, engaged learning that Harvard works on, and you combined it with the teamwork spirit, the spirit of service and, and working together and taking on challenge together of Outward Bound? What if you created schools that were like an Outward Bound trip, where on an Outward Bound trip, you're all out in the wilderness, but your job is not to get yourself to the top of the mountain. Your job is to get your entire crew to the top of the mountain. and if some of your crew have physical challenges or emotional challenges, or they're scared to death out in the woods, like your job is to make sure everyone makes it, not just to look out for yourself. And so we thought, what if school could be that way? Like what if in school, every kid was working with every other kid to make sure everyone succeeded rather than working for her own advancement, for example. So it's a very different vision of school and of 800 proposals, uh, EL was, one of 11 that was funded and of those original 11 funded proposals in 1993 we're the only one that actually still exists as a network but we've been very fortunate because we've had great partners and we've thrived we started with uh, our original name was expeditionary learning outward bound that was our our original name and people knew us as expeditionary learning but even that was a really long word, expeditionary learning. And so at some point, we shortened our name to just EL from expeditionary learning because it's way easier to say. And so now we're just EL education. We've been around 27 years. We started with about 10 schools in different urban settings around the country and a few rural settings. And then we grew to about 150 schools over the course of 15 years. And that number has stayed stable because we decided to stop growing quickly, the number of schools we worked with, because people were asking us to scale our work more broadly. And we were worried that we couldn't do it with quality. People said, you have 150 schools, why not 300? Why not 3,000? And we just thought, we're having a hard time having 150 really good schools. Like We can't make 3,000 great schools quickly. So if we're going to scale our contribution to the country, we have to think of a different way to do it. And so for the last 10 years, our number of schools has stayed stable at 150, but the people we touch has grown exponentially because we started producing free resources, open source materials for the country based on our best schools, and those have spread around the country. And so now we work in partnerships with many large urban districts to, to take some of the best ideas from EL and see if we can land them district-wide. So we still have 150 schools, and then we have about 500,000 kids in districts around the country who are using our resources, like our uh, literacy
0: curriculum, for example. So interesting. I um, We were just talking earlier, before you uh, joined us in the recording, about why there aren't more EL schools in the country. And I love the intentional approach to network growth. Because if if we think back to the early 2000s, like uh, maybe 2003, 2004, into like 2008, 2009, we're talking about the attempted growth of large scale networks to really trying to reshape education and i and i saw that uh those efforts kind of being funneled through say like the gates foundation initiatives with things like lighthouse schools and big picture schools and there was this all of this money being funneled to networks that were really trying to reform kind of what public schooling was looking like around the country and literally millions of dollars were being funneled through the Gates Foundation and other foundations to reshape uh, what school was meant to look like, particularly, as you mentioned, Ron, for at-risk students in urban areas. And I I saw a lot of that growth as really fascinating, but I also saw it as as problematic because some of the organizations didn't have the internal infrastructure, as you're sort of hinting at here, to be able to support all of the schools within their model.
4: Sure, um, you know. So for the first first fifteen years, we really did one thing, which was to work with individual schools only. And we worked with public schools that were district schools, and then to some extent, individual charter schools also. And we prioritized schools in low-income urban and rural communities. Most of the schools we worked with were existing schools. Uh, that were either doing okay or even struggling, who were really all in with a whole different vision of education. So we would partner with them for an extended period of time, like five years minimum, to transform the way teaching and learning happened in that building. And we were never the owner of those schools. We're not a charter management organization. We don't hire staff. We don't uh, provide buses and buildings. We just were A professional development partner for that school to change the way teaching and learning happened in the building and sometimes we were lucky enough to have a district come to us and say we want to open a new school that is based on your model and our success rate there was really good our success rate with existing struggling schools was mixed i'll be totally honest like sometimes the conditions were strong enough and we could succeed and sometimes they were not in a district um, we were one of the recipients, uh, Mike, of that those Ga- that Gates funds. I was very appreciative. In the early two thousands, we received about twenty five million dollars over the course of ten years mm-hmm. to open new high schools in low income urban communities and rural communities. And those schools, I am super proud of. Most of those schools today are still getting ninety eight to one hundred percent of their kids into college. And they're not yeah, selective.
0: Awesome.
4: They take school. They take kids from any. You know, there there's no exam to get in. There's no process to get in. You just do attend those schools and you're going to college basically. And they're almost entirely low income students of color. So I'm really proud of those schools. But it, I'll be honest, like we had really good funding from the Gates Foundation to, to fund professional development for hiring the principal a year ahead of time, getting teachers. Uh, paid for the summer training before we opened. we had some really wonderful conditions for professional learning for those. And we don't have that in every school we work with around the country. And we typically work with existing schools where we have to change people's culture, like the culture of school. And so it's, it's really hard. So I'm not saying we're not building new good schools all the time, but we can not do it fast and at scale. So we have that network it's it's in 35 different states, schools K to 12 in uh, mostly urban but some rural schools as well of all different sizes and scales from big schools to little ones. But you know 10 years ago we realized if we want to reach a lot of people especially for reasons of equity we have to have a second approach to full school adoption. And so we distilled some of the most important ideas from our practices and created things that could be adopted district-wide across a full district. And the most, uh, the biggest of those is we created a literacy curriculum that's open source, but which bakes in character development uh, as our outward bound roots would suggest. And it bakes in social justice to it as well. And that literacy curriculum has now been taken up by districts all over the country. So, uh, you know, our big footprint now actually is urban district.
3: Ron, I wonder if you could walk us through what a typical EL classroom looks like, Um, perhaps in one of the schools, if we were to walk around it, what what kinds of things would we see in these schools that have adopted your um, program's uh, Tenants Wholesale?
4: Right, so if it's a full adoption of the full model, then one of the things you would notice is if you visited the school, the first thing that would happen was that student ambassadors would meet you there at the door. And student ambassadors would be the ones giving you the tour of the school and explaining to you the philosophy of the school and how the school worked. And they would be the experts because there's a lot of student leadership of ownership of learning and ownership of the building in schools. Every one of our full model schools uses a structure called Crew, which is something we took from Outward Bound, which means that every single day kids meet together in small teams where they discuss their academics and also their personal lives and their social emotional lives, where they work on being better human beings, where they discuss service and justice issues. And it's the part of the day where kids can be real with each other. So, to be candid about what that looks like on an elementary level it looks like a much deeper longer morning meeting from like the responsive classroom morning meeting model
3: right like
4: a little bit extended and instead of it just being in the morning like in a responsive classroom model which is a terrific model it also is at the end of the day at a closing crew meeting and it's often during the day for a conflict resolution or clarification of values in the class at a secondary level It looks like a small advisory, a dozen kids in a middle school or high school who meet together every day, but not like a homeroom for 10 minutes, like an intense 45 minutes together in, you could call it a support group. Sometimes I feel like it's more like an AA group, like a bunch of kids sitting in a circle being honest with each other and saying, look, game is run and I didn't do my homework last night.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I think I need that group. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and
4: then like kids will say I didn't do my homework but my grandmother was sick and so it's not really my fault. And then the other kids in in his crew might say, "Wait a minute, we saw you out in the neighborhood last night. You were not home with your grandmother. Like be real here, you know?" And like they they support each other and they hold each other accountable. And one of the reasons why many of those high schools for example that that I mentioned that we helped to open with districts are getting 98% of kids to graduation on time and 98% of those kids into college. Is true is the fact that they have this family at school that stays with them for four years and keeps them on track and keeps them sort of honest about how are we going to make sure we all support each other to get through to make it to graduation to get into college to be first generation college kids. I think one of the main things you'd see is that culture of the school where people are being real with each other, where they're talking about character, where they're talking about who they are as human beings at the same time as they're talking about their academics. And then I think what you'd see different in the academic classes is that the classes are focused on what we call learning expeditions, which are deep, uh, interdisciplinary investigative studies of topics that connect kids to their local community and result in original research and work that kids do that contributes to their community in some way kids are learning their math they're learning their english they're learning their history but they're putting that stuff in service of doing studies of the demographics of their city of doing water quality testing air quality testing soil testing where they're they're interviewing local civil rights heroes and and creating a book about their work where you know so kids are taking their their academic experiences and putting them in service to do some good for their community
3: sounds amazing, uh, student-centered approach. No wonder they have such such buy-in, really. Um, that sounds amazing. Um, I, as a teacher, I kind of want to join right now. But um, so what is the <laughs> typical teacher experience? What What is it like to teach at one of these schools?
4: A really good question. Um, so I would say, I, I'll just be honest to say, I think our teachers work harder than many teachers do because there's so much of the... Uh, both the creative connection of the learning experience to community contribution and community resources, which takes time out of the classroom to like make those connections and work with community experts and bring in experts to critique work, and plan adventurous things where your kids are out of the classroom all day occasionally, and you got to coordinate with the other teachers to make that possible, or maybe you're out of the classroom for for three days on a trip to investigate something, and you have to coordinate with other teachers. A lot of work. I would say it's also just way more gratifying. Like I think our teachers are on a mission. Like they are so proud of their students. They're so proud of their work. Uh, one of the other differences I would say is that if you're a teacher, it doesn't matter if you're a math teacher or a school counselor or a second grade teacher, you're also running crew every day. Which means that you can't be the kind of teacher who say, "I was hired to teach math. I'm not going to worry about um, Janine's uh, family life at home, like that's not my job. That's someone else's. That's the school counselor's job. If Janine's struggling at home, that's I was hired to teach math. And you know, we would say, no, you were hired to help Janine learn math, not to teach math. And if 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 Janine's not learning math because she's struggling at home, like and she's in your crew, your job is to help find out what's going on in her home and help her. And um and so. We would say that a teacher has to be a teacher of the whole child if they really want to be a teacher in one of our schools and flourish
2: ron, to, to follow up with that, so it sounds awesome. And like you said, it's also is is a bit demanding. Um, as e l and as you know thinking about those schools and those teachers within the schools, what sort of support mechanisms um, are there for teachers? Just, you know, daily support? and and then also, I'm thinking about you've, uh, highlight the importance of professional development for schools, and also these open resources, which you've mentioned. Um, If you could just talk a little bit about that, like what professional development looks like, because some of us might have different experiences of professional development. Um, I think that would be really helpful too, if you could a little bit about that too.
4: Sure. Well, our, um, our, almost all of our work as an organization is providing professional development for teachers and Our hope is that the professional development itself reflects the kind of culture we hope we will see in schools. So if we hope that schools will be connected to academics and character together, if we hope that kids will feel respected and pushed, challenged and respected, we have to to design professional learning experiences that feel the same way, right? That feel respectful of teachers that push them but also are willing to listen to them and learn from them. And so, um, you know, it looks very different depending on if it's an individual school taking on the entire model, in which case it's 30 people or 80 people all working together to learn a new approach through trying things out, through going out of the building together, through investigating, meeting local people, doing some of the same things uh, as adults, as you would hope kids will do. But then, when we're working across an entire district, it's a different kind of challenge. So, for example, every every student in Charlotte, North Carolina, every student in Detroit, Michigan, who is a K to eight student, is in the school district, is using our free literacy curriculum, which means, like in Charlotte, we had to get four thousand teachers ready to use a much more student centered, active curriculum, and we can't chunk them out into groups of 20 and have that kind of time with them when there's 4,000. We had to figure out how do you create an experience for 4,000 teachers that still feels personal and respectful, that still feels interactive and engaging with each other. Um, It doesn't, it's not sitting and listening to a PowerPoint, but it really makes them feel excited when you have that many teachers. And I'm really proud. I feel like we're succeeding so far with that. On
2: how did you do that?
4: Well, I mean, I can say we we literally took on was three thousand over the course of three days, and the way we did it was we broke we we rented a giant convention center wow, and we broke those three thousand teachers into groups of about two hundred hmm. put them in one room, and then broke those groups of two hundred into tables of ten. And we hired teachers from our other schools who are already using this open source curriculum or become experts through their use of it to be in charge of tables, so that at your table group over the course of days, you're digging into the material together, reading text together, arguing with each other about what the text means, making text-based, uh, evidence-based arguments, art, you know, work, doing the same kinds of work that your students are going to be doing in the kind of groups that you, we hope they will do in their classrooms with teachers checking in on them and pushing them and respecting their prior knowledge so that at the end of a day, people felt like, wow, that was an active day of grappling with cool material and content. It wasn't a sitting and listening to someone give a presentation kind of day. And so, you know, our hope is that we can transform a little bit, a whole district. You know, and, and I can say, I'm so proud. Like. Every kid in the public schools of Detroit are using our free curriculum right now. And for the first time in the history of Detroit, every kid did, every grade level in Detroit had a real bump in in their literacy uh, as assessed by their state test. Ever. It's the first time ever. And I think it's because teachers felt respected and pushed at the same time to try something different.
0: It's so this like ultimate balancing act right with professional development is how do you encourage teachers who are often super passionate about their jobs, no matter where they teach or what grade they're teaching in um and they have worked a long time for the most part uh to get engaged with their work and really putting their best step forward, but how do you take that group of individuals and say? you all are doing awesome work and encouraging them, but also at the same time respecting them as professionals and pushing them to say, How can you do better? Right. I think it that's sort of the balancing act that you're
4: Yeah, honoring their professionalism and their prior knowledge, but also pushing them. Yes, exactly right.
0: Yeah, and I know that we've we've all sat in professional development series that have been less than gratifying, I'm sure. Um, so it's it's great for me to hear that kind of uh effort that EL is putting into making that real. And I'll have to tell you, Ron, I uh, grew up just outside Detroit and taught in uh, Detroit public school for a little bit. And so I'm super jonesed to hear about your work in Detroit. That's really amazing.
4: It's been a wonderful district partnership. I mean, district leadership in Detroit has been terrific. And they have taken it seriously. Like they've really dug in as partners with us to think, how do we empower every teacher to to dig in with more challenging stuff for kids to do um, and give kids elevate student voice more in classes like they've taken it really seriously. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that we can make a difference there.
3: I think any time that um, teachers are, you know, we're learning and teaching um, and there's no daylight between those two approaches. Um, I think teachers, you know, the gig is up with a lot of these professional development uh, programs or programmatic approaches that we've been involved with, where, you know, you go to a cooperative lear- learning seminar and it's a, a lecture, you know, that's that's like the obvious one. But there it, it seems like there's not a lot of um, professional development that actually gets implemented in the classrooms. Um, and I think what you're talking about is one of the reasons why. Uh, first of all, there's no buy-in. And second of all, it's not how people learn, and it shouldn't be how we teach. So um, that, that's really that's interesting to think about.
0: Exactly right. Yeah, our school, uh, the school that I work at right now, which is an um, independent school just outside of Philly, they recently gave their Founders Award to Dr. Vitti, who's the superintendent of Detroit Public Schools, for his service to literacy instruction in particular. So my school has been doing a little bit of work with um, with that school group, and I think you're spot on, Ron. That they've been super receptive and really interested in how can we serve a really really hard up student population um, in in better in a better manner.
4: Absolutely, and Dr. Reed has been terrific in being bold and
0: leading that work. Absolutely, yeah. Uh,
1: so, Ron, do. You- you mentioned, uh, you've been mentioning some of the challenges associated with trying to, um, I guess, you know, spread EL education here and get people on board. I'm wondering what other kind of challenges you've seen with it and kind of what are you taking on right now?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, there, first of all, there's the challenge of the moment of we have half a million students that are represented by the partner districts and schools we work with who are home. And mm. uh, that's an a incredible challenge for us right now. But uh, even before the pandemic hit, uh, you know, the the thing I think we were, we were grappling with was we have this model that has worked really brilliantly in small uh, settings, like 150 separate small schools in different parts of the country. But if we want to help all the kids in Charlotte or all the kids in Detroit, we can't expect that every school would transform the entire way they do school to be like that. So how could we distill a set of core practices that still keep the heart of it, but that a district could roll out across the entire district without freaking people out and feeling like you have to change everything about how you do school? And so that's been a, that was a, a tremendous challenge that we're still working on. But the, you know, part of the key was to create a, this open source literacy curriculum. That uh, every school wants literacy, every school needs to work on literacy with kids. So there's no like, why are we doing this? It's it's a if it's a strong literacy curriculum, and it's the highest rated in the country by Ed reports, people will think, all right, it's worth the try, worth trying. And if we can bake into that curriculum some of our core practices, like some of the key things that we care about, like elevating student voice, having students speaking up more, presenting their thinking, presenting their learning, giving teachers a more a role more as coach in the classroom where they're getting kids debating things and using evidence and they're debating things like making the classrooms active places if we can get that happening then we can see change at a at a much bigger scale and that's the that's what we're struggling with all the time is like how which are the practices out? which are the ones we can scale more easily that teachers can really own
1: yeah and i, I can totally relate to that julie and i we teach at a small very successful um, charter school, and we oftentimes have uh, district schools and larger schools coming to see what we're doing. Um, but one of the first things they always say is, "But, but you're so small. Like, you, we can't, we can't pull that off." So we're always trying to remind them that you no, know, like you can, you don't need to replicate our entire program. But there are bits and pieces that certainly you can tweak it, you can make it your own. Um, yeah, so I, I can totally understand what you're saying about that there. Um, I was wondering what you think what are some of the benefits of you know being involved with this this EL education network?
4: Well, I mean, I I can tell you like it's a really good example of a benefit. In in the city of Syracuse, which uh Syracuse Public Schools has some great things, but it, it, it's there's a lot of poverty in Syracuse City District, like many northeastern cities. Um when Syracuse had to shut down all of its schools. The first thing everyone's trying to do is to get kids connected, like get kids online if we can get them devices and make sure they have internet connections and see if school can keep going. Well, because we have this structure called Crew, which is we are all looking out for each other. We meet every day as a team. Uh, Immediately, the schools we work with in Syracuse, uh, like Expeditionary Learning Middle School there, mobilize their crew structure like you have a small team immediately to connect with if you're a math teacher or an English teacher in a regular middle school you might have 120 students that you're responsible for or 95 students you're responsible for it's not like as soon as school shuts down you can grab them all virtually and find them all and make sure they're okay but if you're at expedition learning middle school they are in syracuse one of our schools you have 12 kids whom you know really well you know their families you know their who they are you know where they live they're your school family as soon as schools shut down all kids got engaged quickly and they had the highest percentage of engaged kids immediately in um virtual learning of any school in the city because there's that community well I would just say that the, the kids and the teachers and the staff in EL schools have a different mission in education, which is we're getting smart to do good for the world. Um, we're not just getting smart because it's our job to go to school. We're not just getting smart because that's what you do. We're not just getting smart so that someday you can get rich. Like You're getting smart because being smart is the way you'll be able to help your community and help the world. And, and everyone's together in that mission. And it's really different, I feel like, when you're mission-driven, when you're part of a community with a common goal.
2: And these, are, these are great things. Thanks for sharing um, all, all of these insightful comments and stories. How could, uh, how could people get involved in EL and how could they learn more about EL education?
4: Right, so, you know, our, our website, which is just eleducation.org, is full of free resources. Everything we create is free. I mean, that's our, our, part of our mission in the world is to share anything we can with anyone, anywhere in, in the world. And so, for example, we host a, a, a sub-website on our website called Models of Excellence, which is the world's largest collection of beautiful student work. It's got student project work and student writing from all over the world, and everything is free and everything is downloadable, hundreds and hundreds of models of great work. That's all there for free. Our K to eight literacy curriculum is housed on our website. That's entirely free. You can download any part of the literacy curriculum that you wish. Um, we've got over 300 instructional videos. Again, fully free. For, so I hope that any listeners uh, would to go to eleducation.org and just think, I'm just going to take stuff that I want. Like, uh, we hope that you take it and share it um, and use it to help uh, educators and students anywhere because we're just trying to spread this stuff widely
0: that's awesome and i am thinking lots of amazing things right now and co-hosts i would love to hear you uh i would love to hear your thoughts and what this conversation has been kind of you know pushing your brain to rethink about education anybody want to go first
2: i can jump in um Yeah, there's there's a lot of things I'm I'm rethinking education as a as a result of this conversation. Um, And I I appreciate the stories, uh, Ron, that that you shared, and you're sharing your insight, but you also like sort of giving insight through a through a story. Um, You know, I'm thinking about that Charlotte, North Carolina story with that PD, and just imagining those three thousand people, um, you know, funneled down to tables, and those tables are having these deep uh, discussions, and and that was thoughtful you know, and that replicated, you know, core values within the district, um, not within the district, within the, the education, within EL. Um, and so, yeah, that's making me rethink uh, what PD can be, uh, what professional development can be. And, and it has to not just change, but it has to come from something. And and what you described in North Carolina couldn't have just happened, but it came out of who you guys are and, and who you want to be. Um, So that's inspiring to me and helping me rethink uh, education.
3: I I can jump in on that, too. Um, It makes me think about how EL is really meeting teachers as professionals um, and also as learners um, and that we really need to create that buy-in. It should be aligned with the values, um, this professional development network, also the school network, which um, I'd love to know if we can go and visit a school um one day when we're all back open um and really that students go to school and they want to learn and building their communities um seems like a great place to start so i'm really really inspired by what you've had to say here uh today ron
1: and i'm i really you know everything you said just totally resonated with me um the mission that you know we are we're not our goal isn't to prepare kids to pass tests that's nice and all. Um, yes, there are basic skills that they absolutely need to know, but at the end of the day, we are preparing them to be productive citizens that are going to, you know, do good in the world. I loved how you were just talking, you started off with just talking about, you know, if you, you are you are everybody's teacher in your little town that you live in. I think if every teacher kind of had that mindset that, you know what, um, I'm teaching the future citizens, people that are going to be in my community and how do I want them to be able to, you know, care for me, (laughs) help me out later on down the line. Um, It's just such a different perspective, I think, than I want to say some district's mentality of, you know, tackling education and how uh, looking at it more on a macro level and just, you know, running kids through the system. Um, So I really appreciate everything that you've had that you've shared here, Ron.
0: I think for me, I am struck, Ron, by the statement about schools working toward creating good people. And I often think that this is something that schools sort of have moved away from, especially in the last 25 years, when we've tried to meet the demands of policy burdens, such as those put forward by No Child Left Behind, and we've tried to meet the demands of Um, intense college admissions, examinations, and we've tried to meet the demands of competing in a global market with other uh, countries that are raising their literacy rates faster than ours. And all of that really clouds, in my view, what school should really be about. And that is providing students a solid backbone on which they can make critical decisions and they can think about the world in a in a thoughtful manner and i think your your point about el providing both skills and this backbone right because it's not enough for me to just be able to read the great gatsby i think i bring up the great gatsby like every other episode but whatever <laughs> i it's not enough just to read the great gatsby right It it's it's to think about what is you know wealth stratification like in the United States, and how is that impacting in my community, and what can I do about it that those are the real questions that we want kids to be grappling with, and that's what schools should be doing, and that's what e l is really pushing its schools and its teachers and its students and its communities to be thinking about. Ron, you got the last word here. I would say anything that EL is consistently pushing you to rethink about education?
4: Well, I would say this crisis of schools being closed has just sharpened the spotlight on the inequities right now. Um, And so I think as a nation, we try to pretend that, well, public schools are the great equalizer and it's all fine right now, like because everyone can get online and just do their learning at home there's a stark difference when we work with schools and districts where kids don't have devices at home they don't have internet connections at home they depend on schools for their food they depend on schools for sometimes just a safe place to be and so i hope this is a wake up point for america in a lot of ways like i hope that we can as a nation like look at the racism that has contributed to the inequities of right now I hope that we, public schools and teachers in general have been bashed for the last decade. And I hope people are seeing, oh my gosh, now that my kids are home, this is hard. Like, I don't know how to teach my own kids. Like the teachers are really important. I hope public schools and, and teachers are become seen in a new light from this. And I hope that sort of the harshness of income inequities and, and racism in the country becomes much more seriously taken when we return, um, because it's like, it's, it's a sharp, um, you know, very sharp difference right now. A lot of my learning is like, how do we in this time of crisis reach those kids who who
0: aren't easy to reach at home? Yeah. (laughs) All of those things. Yes. I, I laugh only because I don't think you could have picked a more, apt description of what happens in my brain on a daily basis when I think about school from home. Um, it's it's really critical that equity and inclusion are at the fore of our conversation as we start to think about how we're going to emerge from our pandemic lifestyles right now. Um, we're ending the segment here and I want to make sure to get a plug from everybody before you all have to leave. Uh, Ron, you want the first shot at this? What, what do you want to plug here?
4: Uh, I, I'm gonna make a double plug. First of all, I'm gonna say, please come use our free resources at eleducation.org. Uh, interestingly, we just we just were able to get wide open school, which is a great place to to take a lot of our free resources and, and join the collection with them. But come to eleducation.org and use our stuff. And then my second plug is requesting now, and especially next year, what hopefully will be back in buildings again, please send us beautiful student work for our Models of Excellence website collection. We would love to see beautiful work from K to 12 students in your schools. Great writing, great projects. We are always looking for submissions. So thank you.
1: Awesome. Um, I'll go next. So anybody out there that is, whether you're teaching or learning from home, um, There is a website called wideopenschool.org, and it is a plethora of free resources for teaching and learning. Um, There's stuff on there for students, teachers, parents, you name it. Um, It's got all sorts of wonderful resources on there. So even as like school is kind of winding down, I know for some people, um, and you're maybe thinking about what can you do over the summer to avoid summer slide, check out uh, wideopenschool.org, it's a good site.
0: Julie, what do you want to plug?
1: I'll
3: plug another book um, because we're in the middle of our network series. I'll plug uh, Better Together How to Leverage School Networks for Smarter, Personalized, and Project-Based Learning. Um, it was amazing. A lot of what we're talking about with school governance, about building a platform, about scaling up, um, about more personalized uh, student-driven learning. Uh, it's by Tom Vander Ark and Lydia Dobbins. Check it out.
0: Awesome, Matt. What you got?
2: Uh, Rivet. Rivet is a ebook um, online. You know, for uh, mostly for early elementary students. It's a free version. It was developed by Area 120, which is a Google experimental product uh, group, and uh, it's just really helpful, especially for those younger students that are, that want to learn how to read. It's it's really engaging. It's free. It's great. I endorse it.
0: Cool. Thanks. So I've got two plugs. First, I mentioned earlier in the series that I just picked up a book called Maverick Teachers. Um, It's by Dave Baugh and A.J. Giuliani, uh, published just last year. It's a highlight of um, a collective of teachers that are doing really amazing things in public schools. Uh, Shameless plug, on my part, Dave is a friend of mine. And so I'm uh, pushing his book out there. hope you all read that. You can grab that on Amazon. And the other plug I want to um, share is called the Experience Institute. So they're based in Chicago. They provide, uh, I guess you could call them internship-like experiences. Um, they call them experience-based programs. And they're a little bit shorter than usual, um, anywhere between three months and 12 months for uh, college age students, and then some other opportunities for individuals looking to um, do things a little bit differently with their lives. Ron, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, And we hope that everybody listening will check out EL Education, check out the work that they're doing. It's likely that you'll have an EL school nearby, maybe when we Um, go back to learning in person you can call up that school and give a quick visit and have a look Uh, thanks again Ron we appreciate it
4: thank you thanks for hosting me